are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at SOFTEC.org. Okay, everyone, welcome to the latest uh, and greatest episode of Tech Reads, a podcast that is sponsored by SoftTech, which is sponsored by a great list of sponsors, which um, you should head over to softtech.org. It's S O F T E C dot O R G to learn more about our organization and see all of our sponsors, see what else we're up to. If, uh, if I get this out before our next event, we have a tech brew happening on Monday uh, at the Wayfair, used to be called Bikini, and it's a now a quarterly event that we're doing. So, But this Tech Reads is something we do every month, and it's a great opportunity for us to bring in authors, people from outside the area, kind of continue the what we started during COVID, which was these remote meetings, which we were forced into. It plays into what I love so much is working with authors, which plays... It's basically what I what I do. So um, today we have our first fiction author. He's a science fiction author, Lee. Um, and Lee, I didn't print anything out, but you can basically tell us a little bit about yourself and the, the new book you just published called Surrender. And then I've invited some people in to have a conversation around uh, around the book, but mostly around the future of entertainment, kind of where entertainment has led us to this point today. And a little bit I know about Lee and his company i think this is near and dear to his heart in regards to a better future as opposed to a bleak future which i think hollywood and entertainment can take some responsibility for bill and i have had lots of conversations about this so i'll have him introduce himself at some point because i feel he's going to be a key uh, contributor to this conversation so why don't we just start with you lee tell us a little bit more about yourself and about surrender sure well glad to be here thanks for having me well, I like to say that um, dystopia is easy and utopia is hard. And it's difficult to tell a positive story of the future without getting yourself tangled up in all the crazy things that are going on right now, from chatbots to robots that are outfitted as snipers. I mean, you uh, you can certainly doom scroll. And but the I started to think about this idea of how could we look at the future in a more positive way that would give us a shot at actually living it. Uh, what got me started writing Surrender is that uh, I have kids, I have a grandchild, and I started thinking about the world I was leaving for them and what I was doing about what was going on with the climate emergency. And what really brought it home, I live in California, Southern California, and we had the fires a few years ago. And we didn't have fires immediately here, but we had fires close by. And it was enough so you couldn't go outside. You couldn't open the windows. And I started to think about you know, this is probably going to be a commonplace for a number of people, people who have weather emergencies or people who have flooding and they couldn't, couldn't um, you know, their, their homes are washed away. And indeed, some of that happened here in California and even around me. So I started to experience this feeling, which later I labeled as climate anxiety, which is a thing. I had no idea that I was experiencing that really, but it it really came about. And I started to think about, well, what am I going to do about that? You know, uh, everything that I seem to be doing is just kind of a drop in the bucket, you know, recycling, 3% of people recycle, we have 3% of stuff being recycled, electric cars, 3% to, you know, less hybrid cars, a very low percentage. So what can one really do? And that's really the idea of the book where how do you take on this huge problem, which is kind of immobilizing and is kind of stop you dead in your tracks. But what can you do as an individual, you know, and for me, storytelling, which I'm sure we're going to get into today, the storytelling package is a great, powerful way of getting ideas across of 
changing people, of just getting people hooked into things. So the storytelling package, the delivery system of a novel became very appealing to me. Plus, after collaborating in television shows, and I still collaborate in podcasts, writing a novel all by oneself is wonderful. You know, you're, you're your own boss. You don't have to worry about too much. You just have to worry about editors later. But in the first pass, you're, you know, it's your baby. You get to do what you want to do. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I started as a writer for Good Morning America back in New York, and I wrote plays. I had plays off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, and eventually the siren call of California came. Uh, I got hired by Disney to to write a, three features. I only ended up writing one at that time, but I wrote some features and uh, wrote some uh, television shows, and we're talking about cartoons. I started writing various cartoons. I was a young dad, so I wrote a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, generally acknowledged as the worst Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ever written. I was told by my story editor, I said, okay, thanks, but you'll pay me, right? And he paid me uh, and my partner. Uh, I wrote uh, episodic television, all kinds of stuff, you know, for quite a while and eventually switched back to news writing as a steady gig. Again, young dad, I have two kids, three kids now, but two kids then. And I started writing for date and producing for Dateline NBC for local news for E Entertainment Television, just as a producer, you know, as a guy who would come in, write the stories, sometimes go out in the field. And it became what I did for many years uh, and started my own production company, did documentaries for the Learning Channel, History Channel, Discovery, Court TV, and also television specials and series. And did that for a long time until I was working on a show for the History Channel called Breaking Point. And it was about breaking things, literally like crashing cars and breaking mountaineering gear and smashing stuff. And I thought, you know, if I were ever going to leave television, this would be a great documentary to go out on, you know, the breaking point. So I did. I left TV is about 2009. And I had all the audio gear because I was producing. So I said, well, let's try this newfangled podcasting thing. So uh, since then, I've been, yeah, it was definitely a Mythbuster. There was a ripoff. That show I was describing is definitely a ripoff of Mythbusters, responding to a comment here. Uh, so I've been podcasting uh, as my day job for about 10, 11 years and writing away on fiction podcasts, some using synthetic voices, AI voices, and a mix of AI voices and actors. We could talk about that. And uh, writing short stories and building up to this big novel project, which took a couple of years to get off the ground and write, because novels are like running marathons and they're complex. Uh, and I'm writing the sequel now, writing uh, if, about... It's from 600 to 1,000 words a day uh, going at this sequel to Surrender, which I hope to have out by this time next year. All right. And because we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of the, the novel itself, unless, Bob, you did read it over the weekend. No, we we want to hear just a little bit of the back, just, I guess, the story arc, maybe just share with people a little bit about what world that they are going to get into and just briefly a little bit about the storyline. Sure. Well, it takes place in 2050. And at that, I turned 80 that year, by the way. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, we'll, we'll be, you know, a bunch of us will be around. It's not that far off, even though it sounds like a distant time. And the an AI, a large AI, runs the climate. Climate has been controlled, but imperfectly. I imagine that people will have figured out all these technical solutions to climate change, but they won't work perfectly, which is like every other technical solution that we have right now. And people will live in very simplified housing uh, and they will be subject to uh, extreme heating events and flooding events. And there's a, um, the, the main conflict in the novel is there's, it starts with uh, a woman hires an AI expert to recreate her dead husband. And they end up 
talking about this large AI, which runs the globe, essentially. And if the novel in the large scope of it becomes a conflict between the people who like the earth and like nature and the people who feel that we should basically replace all of that with a technical solution and a mechanical and a computer and an AI solution. So it's kind of, if I had to reduce it to a few words, it's kind of like the techies versus the tree huggers. And you don't really find out who wins until the third book, but it ends on an interesting cliffhanger in this first book. Okay. I like it. Um, so one of the conversations that Bill and I have had, and Bill, why don't you just quickly introduce yourself briefly? Uh, he's got a lot of experience in the business of entertainment. And I, him and I have had a lot of conversations, Lee, about how the culture reflects at a very deep subconscious level, the entertainment that we're consuming mm. and sort of the, a lot of the problems and things in the world that we have, the desensitization to violence. And, you know, you can argue a lot of it, but at the end of the day, it's hard to ignore that the shows that we're watching today, like Sons of Anarchy and some of the brutal, just incredibly violent stuff is, was not on the airwaves 30 years ago. So when Bill was there back in the MacGyver days, so share a little bit about your when you were in the business. Well, Lee, I, I love the uh, the premise and scope of your book. I'm very excited to uh, to read it. I think you're spot on with your thinking. Um, I've had a 40-plus career, like yourself, uh, in the entertainment uh, business. Uh, I'm a writer, director, and producer, and now uh, author. But I have done uh, I've done television movies. I have... Uh, I've done some small features. I've done documentaries. Uh, primarily what took a long time is I have uh, been a, um, a producer and or showrunner or co-showrunner on, um, I've done 10 series, seven of which I've been showrunner or co-showrunner, starting with Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer series, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, uh, helped turn the original MacGyver into a hit, um, and other shows, everything from crazy uh, Freddy's Nightmares, based on the Freddy Krueger character from Nightmare. Uh, Which are pretty tame by today's standards. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, and um, uh, Poltergeist, The Legacy, The Outer Limits, uh, and, and several others. So I've been heavily involved in television series. And um, and he directed the first feature film that ever featured George Clooney, <laughs> A Return to Horror High. It's kind of a cult classic, but wow. before, cool. after his soap opera era, I think he was still. Well, it's actually the film that ended up inspiring um, Scream, uh, Scream, and mm -hmm. uh, Scary Movies. Those franchises, because I was really the first one that did a a horror film that was really a comedic approach. Spoof. That was a comedy spoof of horror movies, even though it had the horror genre elements in it. Um, it was uh, it was more or less a comedy spoof, uh, primarily because I, uh, I, I'm i not a real fan of movies. And I thought, <laughs> but here's a way for me to get my directorial debut, because at that time, and still today, if because of the genre and the way it's distributed and the success of that uh, genre, if you keep the budget under a certain amount, um, you have a lot more leeway in the... Uh, what they will let you do. And at that time, I had uh, production experience from doing series and things, but I'd not directed anything in the in the Hollywood uh, setup and situation. Hmm. So uh, that's primarily what um, what I've been doing. And like yourself, I have seen how the entertainment business has uh, has moved into some directions that I don't think are very overall very healthy uh, for society. There's clearly a lot of good shows that are being done, but there's something else that is happening. And I think uh, what I think your book is talking about, those things that we have to be aware of. Uh, and like yourself, I, uh, in 2016, after uh, the financing fell through and I was just about ready to start shooting an independent feature film, um, I made the conscious choice to, on a day-to-day -day basis, to step more fully away from all the activity within the entertainment business and concentrate on writing novels. I'm still doing screenplays, but uh, um, I am, uh, I, I'm actually glad to not be in day-to-day -day production. It is, that's a wild and crazy world. And it has continued to change uh, dramatically. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the world has always been pretty violent. And Shakespeare was a guy who wrote some pretty violent stuff. 
But there's a very interesting book, which I'm rereading called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Uh, and it charts the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it charts the transition from print to television. And the writer, uh, Neil Postman, talks about, wow, this terrible thing, television, is kind of messing with people's minds, just to <laughs> make it simplify it ridiculously. But I think something's happening on a bigger scale with not only just social media, but the everything revolves around tech now. Everything. Everything runs on tech. The The old software will eat the world has become more than true. And so it's this, you know, we're we're pretty violent animals. We we like to run things. We're, we don't like to fit in as a species very well. We like to build stuff and make roads and make buildings and push other species out. And now that we have this big hammer of AI, of tech, of computers, it's, you know, we're pretty unstoppable. And that's, I don't mean that in a good way. You know, we could really, we are running things as it is. And we don't, we have some predators, uh, covid is a good was a pretty good predator uh but the way that humans are running things right now doesn't bode that well for our continued existence on the planet people talk about oh we have to save the planet and i say no problem the planet will be fine you know there's going to be a big rock out there in space it's just we, we're not going to be on it uh if we don't change our ways well, and if anything, COVID has sort of accelerated our dependency on technology to a degree, and that the sort of attention of people being pretty much back in front of a television for probably more hours a day than they ever have, because, yeah. you know, COVID kind of conditioned us to create this habit of watching a show every night, and there's an endless supply of shows that you can watch and from all these streaming uh, services that don't seem to have any sort of governance, like maybe the FCC that would used to limit what well, you could, you couldn't yeah. use swear words on yeah. network television, right? Well, no, because of the, um, with the three major networks that you could sell to at the time, and then Fox became the, the fourth network, they all had standards and practices divisions. Right. And I can remember, I used to think these were really funny conversations to have as an adult, but I would be on the phone as a writer producer working on a series, talking to executives in the standards and practice division and negotiating how many dams and hells we might be able to put on, uh, you know, in the show. And what we would do in order to try to get away with speech that was a little more like what people use is we would actually put some swear words in the script that we knew there was no way we would get them through. And of course, the people in standards and practices would freak out because they say, yeah. you can't use that word. And we said, we absolutely have to use that word. We all know people use that word, but you can't use it on television. So we'd finally say, all right, we won't use that word, but you have to let us use hell three times. And, so, and you would hang up the phone after getting what you needed and you thought, I'm a full-grown adult having a conversation like this. So clearly society has really changed. Culture has really changed since then. Um, well, and, and younger people are getting exposed to this stuff at a much younger age, right? When our right. brains are still really evolving. And the stuff that's being published on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, there's no way to slow, you know, to review that stuff fast enough. There's, there's no filter for them. They're having to confront and face everything That's right all all at once unfiltered unfiltered exactly unfiltered. Well, yeah. and and it's that shift from okay this was fiction and now this is reality i think there was just a, a mass shooting and somebody filmed a whole bunch of it and a bunch of it was posted online before they could do anything to take it down so like tens of millions of views of these of a mass shooting happened just like in the last couple of weeks i forget what it was but it was some something happened and uh, i just saw it pop up so it's it's that transition from, okay, this is this is really happening, but it's on a screen, so it doesn't feel real until you're in the thick of it, and then you know you're you're experiencing that. Let me. Yeah. Well, people would rather film the event than intervene and stop the damage. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is so strange. Isn't yeah. it? Well, the draw for a social media po- to go viral, I understand why social media influencers, and that's going to be the topic on Monday. And it's a thing. 
but they it's a very uh, lucrative position to be in when you realize how much money some of these influencers are earning they will do anything to get views and it's disturbing but there's also it's greed it's basically behind all of it comes down to wow i can just do this and make lots of money and do very little work right the police been making an arrest today has 15 people filming it yes. while one person is hurt and needs help And this is all viewed as supposedly normal. And this is one of the challenges for our society. I think you're touching on this with what you described in your book, Lee, that Mm. is how much of this do we normalize? And you're talking about a a future that you're envisioning where some strange things have become normal. And what does that do to us as as human beings? Yeah, I think our response to things is this kind of incrementalism. Like to to look at climate change, the real solution is to get rid of fossil fuels. Uh, but how do I do that as a person? And people take, uh, we have been kind of sold a bill of goods, as it were, by fossil fuel companies to make the the problem ours. Like we should be recycling. We should be uh, driving an electric vehicle. But what about the crap that you all are producing, meaning the plastics companies, the the oil companies, what about that stuff? And I think this comes into the bigger picture is really, what do we call progress now? What we have defined progress really as wrapped up in tech, as something that means the most production and the least amount of time for the least amount of money, kind of an efficiency view of what progress yeah, the, is. Keurig's a perfect example, right? Here's this amazing ability to push a button and have a fresh cup of coffee anytime you want. Right. But yeah. if you knew how much of that is going into the landfill, it would just blow your mind, right? This company right. was celebrated for creating this great solu- you know, technology solution, but it's actually been a huge disaster from a climate perspective. We, we can't, as a species all have a fresh cup of coffee whenever we feel like it. We shouldn't expect, you know, right. but anyway, that's that's just a, yeah. one example. No, that's a good example. I mean, it's we've built this thing, meaning the world, the, our society. We've built this thing to provide efficiency, the most goods for the cheapest price, uh, you know, and it's that's not really the way nature works, but it's the way we're making the planet work. And it's not that, it's not really working that well for any any other species except us for the moment. You know, it's going to stop working well because it's not such a great game. Uh, I'd like to throw in that, you know, nature works by trial and error. So, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't, nature doesn't care about anything. Fortunately, in order for us to have a nature that works, all these sort of disasters have mostly worked themselves out. And because, you know, the greatest extinguisher of species is nature. Um, and then there's the, the the flip side. I don't disagree with anything anybody's saying here, but I wanted to sort of throw this in as well that, you know, many of the problems that we have created through the use of technology are, it's possible to solve through the use of technology. However, the use of technology for solutions like, you know, putting up something in the stratosphere to block the sun, you know, has side effects, but also nature has side effects. So I think it can be argued that we, with our technology are kind of a form of evolution hyper sped up. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, we, we've taken a lot of things at face value and we, they need to be reexamined. A good example is, Let's build a freeway. Let's build a highway right through the city. You know, New York City, to take the example. Let's divide a neighborhood. Let's get that bridge up. Let's get that highway up because it's progress. And it turns out, you know, that destroyed a lot of ecosystems. It destroyed a lot of neighborhoods. It divided people. And it's probably not was so great, but it was great for the few who it benefited. And, you, you know, my dad commuted every day on those roads in New York, so it benefited my dad. I mean, I can't pretend that didn't, didn't help, but it also hurt. And I think a lot of the technologies that we're looking at now, we should be looking, we should be asking, do I need it? Would it help me? 
what good is it doing? What negative is it doing? You know, we could get into the deep hole of chatbots, you know, and which is a very good example of something which on the surface looks amazing, but also has is going to have some pretty bad effects too. I, I agree with you. And, uh, I think the thing that's different, what where I was just uh, putting an equivalency between nature and humans and humans being sort of an advanced version of evolution, the thing that I was missing in that argument is uh, technology is for something that we want and nature doesn't want anything. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's very true. Right. Exactly. We have a we have an agenda that we have the power at the moment to force on the rest of the species we share this planet with. It may not be so great for the other species, but it's fine for us, supposedly. <laughs> Maybe not really. Well, and also there has always been a period of adjustment and adaption once there are advances in technology. And we can look back hundreds of years and see that in application. But now, which I think is what you're getting at in, in your book, technology, we clearly see and experience it's moving so rapidly yeah. that culture is not able to adjust and adapt fast enough until technology has gone on and changed yet again. So we are always kind of uh, behind yeah. the eight ball and catching up. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, because technology proves these changes prove to be profitable, Brian, you were talking about influencers and and how they will do anything to hits because they're, they're getting the hits they want because that makes them a lot of money. We're dealing with toxic capitalism uh, that is tied to technology in this way. In the entertainment business, we have seen changes and casting directors and legitimate producers and directors are crying about this. The studios and networks at times are trying to force productions to hire people who have a social media following or, or are influencers yeah. to be an actor or actress, whether they can act the part or not, oh, yeah. uh, but because they have so many followings. Publishers obviously now want authors to have a major social media platform in order to, to get published. And one of the things that Brian is helping authors with is to find a way through that and around that without having to have 2 million followers to yeah, it's, your, it's your a, books. It's an unachievable barrier for most people, but it's, you know, are our brains even capable of keeping up with the the pace of change? What As I, you know, get older and I see what's happening in the world where companies are streamlining their processes and putting the work back on the, the customer, right? Good example just happened at the community college. You can no longer buy a parking permit on campus. You have to go through the website, put in your license plate number, and you, there's no paper ticket anymore. Okay, but this, this community college serves a senior population through their community programs. I guarantee you that they're isolating a lot of these people who are not going to go to classes anymore because they don't understand how to go in and just get a damn parking permit. Mm -hmm. It's $4, but the, I understand that they're doing it because it, it eliminates these machines that used to print up tickets. Mm -hmm. It And it basically, they can take a picture of your car as you drive on campus and check it against a database to make sure that license plate's been registered. I mean, it eliminates the human element, and it's all in the name of profit and, and streamline, right? Um, and to me, that is a disturbing trend that we can't turn. And I see the same thing. I'm looking at, okay... What can I push back on my my clients that they can provide me more information so that my job's easier because I'm trying to do more with less? And it's just it's this pace of trying to keep up yeah. is forcing us. into Well, and, and technology is removing the humanity from the humu human experience. Mm -hmm. To your point, mm -hmm. the, other, the other day, I, my wife and I went to go, decided to go see Shenyun, you know, this fabulous thing. So we went online. And we spent an hour online, and it was virtually impossible to figure out how the hell to get a seat. I finally just in in destroyed. I, I drove over to the box office at Cal Poly and bought two tickets. Yeah, much easier. Well, <laughs> and when I tried to buy a ticket for the Cirque thing we went to in Santa Maria, you couldn't buy a ticket if you left one space between you and the tickets that had been sold. It, it, it did not allow you to buy tickets unless you were filling the row of seats. So it just like these are the things because they don't want to leave any empty seats in the stadium. And I understand why they do it, but it's just it's it's this thing that frustration levels. And I feel I know I'm not alone, but the frustration levels that technology supposedly is, is making our lives simpler. But it's oftentimes in the name of streamlining and profit for the 
corporation that's benefiting from our business. Like, where's the discounted price? Because we're doing all the work now. Like, if you're self-checking out, you don't pay any less for that for doing the job that somebody else used to. <laughs> right. Yeah. So enough true. of my rant. But no, back to, so and, and Francis, if you want to chime in on this, because you, like Bill, were in the business in the era of lighter entertainment in the sense that, you know, we're not going all the way back to... Um, leave it to beaver kind of era, right? But there's been this evolution of more violence and um, intensity, just like the, the shock and awe that shows have to, to kind of come up with in order to get viewers. But what is your perception, Francis, as a YA author, you know, you've, you've struggled with trying to bring people back to a lighter world. Unmute, unmute yourself, Francis. I think just hit the space bar or not. <laughs> if he figures it out, Francis, when we can hear you. Oh, here you are. There we go. Okay. okay. I won't, I won't curse them. Um, the, the um, problem, you know, we, we had were author, I mean, freelancers who would come in, didn't know the ropes, you know, and, so a lot of the work that we did in story editing and so on was, you know, fixing stuff. And part of it was standards and practices, you know, which apparently doesn't exist anymore. I don't know, but it, it just from what I'm seeing on the screen, it's uh, pretty much a free-for-all. In, in, in novels, well, okay, I'm self-published. I published four traditionally published books but uh, my novels are all self-published. Uh, there's no gatekeeper at all. And the gatekeeper is probably the marketplace. Uh, whether people are offended or, or, or disturbed or whatever may or may not influence your sales. But the uh, overwhelming thing is I can do anything I want. That's a good point. And that's uh, that shock and awe just to get attention when you have none you know, trying to, it's kind of like walking into a room. And if you want everyone to look at you, you, if you do something shocking, you know, people are probably going to pay attention. And, and then maybe once you get them paying attention, say, well, okay, here's my real stuff. This is why you, you should love me. Well, and, yes. and Lee, Lee, you were talking about the incremental changes in this that has led us to, to where we are. And I saw that happening and had discussions with the top people at the networks about, for instance, at CBS, with all the crime shows they had on for a while and still do, but all the CSI shows, Criminal Minds and everything else, there was a a deciding point where the opening of most of those shows was all about new, inventive and diabolically disturbing ways to torture and kill women, women, and leave the body outline in order to grab the viewer to pull them into the shows. And as I watched this get darker and darker and darker, I, you know, I asked the, the head of the network, I said, what's, what's going on here? CBS was the Tiffany network. It's not the criminal broadcasting system, but that's what it's turning into. <laughs> and the, the same answer I got with that discussion was we are grabbing the audience ahead of the other networks. We're trying to top them. That's what happened also when so-called reality shows started during one of the major writer strikes, because the networks found out, A, they can make these shows cheaper, quicker, and they don't need the same level of scribes, of, of writers, and the audience was willing to accept more strange and unusual behavior. And when I asked, but look at what you were putting out there look at what this is doing to culture and the answer is this the same thing that rupert murdoch just gave in the deposition for fox news's craziness and and lies he said it's not about red states or blue states it's all about the green and it's all about (laughs) money more profits increase this is the toxic capitalist part of the 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 rapid growth of technology and what it can do which leaves you know well, and yeah. Courtney, I don't know if you want to chime in, but it does seem that we've exploited, um, like Bill was saying, the female uh, archetype in an inappropriate way. And it sort of has perpetuated this thing that you have to face that all of us don't as 
white old privileged men. Right. I got rid of my TV in '95. Mm-hmm. Early I, live, I, I often live with elders and cook for them in trade for a room so I can have my small business and own a horse and have a high quality of life on the Central Coast so I don't pay rent. And the the violence and the tits and ass and the ego trips and one-upmanship, it comes right down the hall to my room. Mm. So I've had to, like, it's a spiritual practice, basically, like, not letting it get under my skin. And what you guys were saying before about technology being sold to us as this big convenient thing, I have been dragging my feet for years on getting my social media all just so and getting some ebooks or some videos I can market online and sitting in front of the computer for days and hours. I hate sitting here at the computer. I want to get outside with my horse or in the Mm. garden or with my friends, having dinner with friends. So um, I know that on the horizon is digital identity. I know that on the horizon is central bank digital currency. And that's also going to be sold to us as this big convenient thing, which will take away ultimately a lot of our freedoms of choice in whether we want to go. You know, I I just hope that not more is mandated the next time some big fear, um, some big danger element is afoot and humanity has to be very afraid because of what the news and shows program us to be afraid of. I just really hope our freedoms don't get taken away because it looks really like a lot is happening that has happened in the past throughout history where totalitarianism basically takes over. So that's what I have to say. Mm. Thank you, Courtney. And, you know, as really well said, as we, I want to head to this direction of what we can do lead to change the course, the direction we're going in. And I'm also referencing something that's going around recently is about how young women, young girls today have a higher sense of despair and a higher rate of suicide than ever in history. Like young, young girls are unfortunately in a horrible position. And we have to take the blame for creating this narrative that has led to this. A lot of it is social media, but um, you know, the isolation, the COVID did not help either, right? There's right. this huge mm-hmm. gap in sort of navigating the world and, and depending on the screen to social media to stay connected, but that's such a dangerous path. But Lee, what do, what do you see as sort of the path towards more of a utopian as opposed to a dystopian? Well, if you're on the TV, I'll have to mute my, that's okay. Yeah, thank you, uh, Francis. Uh, um, I think a lot has to do with community and we are social animals and we need to there's a self-correcting aspect to community which i think could help we're doing it right now it be this is a digital you know we're we're not actually there but it's a way of experiencing community and i think flawed as they were the broadcast standards and practices idea was to attempt to impose if you will community standards on a medium that was all over the place, you know, it was, it was in the, in the air. And I think that there's a, a pr- the problem with social media and especially with younger people is that there's no um, guardrail there. There's no governor, there's no way to stop it. There's no one guiding anything. And it's only guided by an algorithm, which again is just to help a company make a profit. And they are built to be addictive, all the social media platforms. I got rid of Twitter recently because it got too crazy and I've switched to Mastodon. And guess what? It's kind of addictive. You know, I'm having to place some limitations on my social media use, even with that, which is doesn't have all the negative social engineering of Twitter. So that we have been as humans subject to a lot of social engineering practices by large corporations the the social media companies have psychologists industrial psychologists on staff and they know how to mess with us so i think there really is what courtney was talking about is there's kind of an opt-out option here there's kind of like can we not get addicted to this stuff can we seek real community with real people from time to time or more often 
can we not look at the machines that now drive the center of life? Do they have to drive every single thing at every single moment? Uh, it's a hard choice. You know, no, no moral choice comes without inconvenience, as the expression goes. It's not, I don't think it's going to be an easy thing to accomplish, but I think well, we have to try. Maybe just throwing in the towel, trying to ex- think that you'll be able to keep up with it. We realize technology is evolving at such a pace. I'm talking for me personally, like I can't keep up with the pace of change. I mean, book publishing has really evolved in the last 10 years, but it seems like since COVID, it's really accelerated. Now with chat GPT and AI narration and all these, you know, AI artwork and like, it's just going in even a faster pace because like this morning I was looking for keywords for a client. I said, give me 10 keywords and sure enough, I, I had my answer in seconds where normally that would have taken more work. And so I can see the appeal. It does serve a purpose, but um, just, you know, for example, in designing a web and building a website, I can tell you that if you just know the basics of CSS, HTML, and JavaScript, you can do amazing stuff now because chat GPT will give you the actual code to inject in the page, but you have to know how to, it's a two, it's a, it's a language that you still have to understand how all that stuff works, but it's just, um, there's no way to keep up with, keep up with it. So I'm not well, going to even try. Well, in, in talking about some of the solutions, I think one of the best ways to do it is to start very personally first and very individually and first be able to say to yourself, let me get still emotionally and mentally. And then the second step would be, let's make sure in my thinking and my feeling that I am not allowing fear to become a runaway train in my thought, Mm -hmm. because that's usually at the heart and the foundation of most of our problems is fear because it takes over our thinking and it takes over our feeling and, and, good, it, right? and it squeezes our thought down to a yeah. very narrow corridor, which is just basically filled with fear. So yeah. one of the, I think because of the, of the whole group that's participating in us, I think one of the, one of the steps forward is what can happen through storytelling, which is what you started off saying in the very beginning. And it's Lee. your it's passion like, too. It's okay? Yeah. Be, because I think we, we change as, as individuals, as people, as human beings, and therefore as communities and larger entities than communities, we change at the speed of thought. And if a thought can be presented, and many times if it's presented in a story, it resonates more deeply with us, especially if that story has an emotional connection to us. That's very powerful, and I don't think we should overlook the, the, the power of that. And I think the other thing is also to keep some sanity is to recognize, despite all the darkness that we are seeing, which does seem to be so prevalent, there is a lot of good going on. There is a lot within each communities of of, of people actually doing a lot of what uh, Courtney was talking about, of backing off on some of this um, hell-racing technology that is stifling humanity. Um, but I, I I think there are things we can do as an individual, and it begins with one's thought and feelings and uh, and the change we allow to happen from that. I think we need a, mo- a modern-day Amish, a hybrid of an Amish lifestyle where, <laughs> you know, you have the options to disengage and you have community support, but at the same time, you're not going off the deep end and you're cut off. You know, right. the thing is, there's such a hunger in our society for good, and it's not being fed. I spent six years being content director for Kind Magazine. The publisher was in Texas, and she and I basically modeled this on highlighting people in the Central Coast area who were doing things that were productive to society and good, acts of kindness. And it was such a pleasure for me to deal with that. I mean... I got to interview people like Catherine Ryan Hyde, AFO, mm-hmm. all right, and other people who and people who aren't known, well known at all, just to bring out to, to everybody and people. Unfortunately, um, the pandemic came in, and my publisher just folded, and so mm-hmm. that's gone, and I I dreadfully miss that. And I still have people who stop me on the street and say. When's the next issue of that kind magazine? Because that that hunger was being fed at that point. 
We need more of that. Yeah, Courtney, what were you gonna say? I used to keep my horse next to where Catherine Ryan Hyde kept her horse. So <laughs> I know who you're talking about. And like attracts like, it's a, it's a principle of quantum physics. So I have attracted people who have seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And I keep doing good in the world and looking for the good in others and trusting in the good of humanity with um, sort of like a, like you were saying, a clear mind and asking for guidance and focusing on helping others are these spiritual principles that work toward getting you up out of chaos and fear. And so, yeah, the media, the mainstream media anyway, it really pulls us down into those lower vibrations. And so um, what the question is, what percentage of humanity has seen the social dilemma and, and at what percentage will see it? And the answer, I think, is grassroots. And there's a, a financier named Catherine Austin Fitz who has talked about how important local communities are getting a local currency if you can, or at least starting to barter with your neighbors and shop farmers markets and really build mm. the alternatives to um, what's coming as a homogenization or an, a monoculture um, um, availability for of food. And, you know, I guess a lot of things are going to be um, spoon fed to us like, oh, this is the new way right? Like hmm. the um, World Health Organization, or what is it called? They meet in Davos. World Economic Forum has been looking at the, out, the forecast for 2030 is really scary. So we've just got to build, keep building it locally, keep talking to people, keep meeting with like minds, and it, it ripples out. And maybe if you mention all this stuff at the Thanksgiving table, two people in your family are going to ask you questions afterward about it, you know, and that's, it just builds slowly. You can't change everyone at once. People are emotionally hooked on their media. And like the social dilemma talked about scrolling through your Facebook or Instagram feed is like um, being at a slot machine. There's this like a dopamine it's, boost. Yeah. It's an emotional dopamine boost. Exactly. Right. Okay. I'm done. Thank you, Courtney. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're going to, kind of get close in here to wrap it up um is there anyone else buddy anyone else that hasn't uh, spoken up that has anything to contribute or questions no okay um i have a i have a thought <clears throat> and sure. my thought is that our narrative here is being shaped by the narrative that we're being fed the the, the main media narrative <clears throat> that is kind of forcing this worry on us if we're paying close attention to what they're saying as if their narrative reflects reality. And I'm not sure it does. Well, and we didn't get into the death of local news papers and, and what's going to happen to information when it stops being communicated as far as what's happening at a local level, because that's the thing that affects us the most. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of a scary trend that we're all looking at. But, um, but as long as the news media is driven by the, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what you're talking about uh, of the shows going down deeper and deeper and deeper. I've watched shows where I get to a certain point and say, I'm not watching past season four because it's off the, it's off the rails at this point. Yeah, and he, but th that the happens. Media, the media distorts things hugely for exactly that reason. Right, if I, get, I have to get yeah. their attention and I'm down to milliseconds now. I'm not even talking about seconds. Mm -hmm. Down to milliseconds to determine, you know, how do I grab that audience before my competitor grabs that audience? Well, Lee, any parting words of wisdom? Well, I really think it is a local. It's it's really um, echoing what Courtney said and, <clears throat> excuse me, a few others. It's really a local solution that we don't have to take what we're being fed as being more convenient or being more plugged in or whatever it is, that that may not be the solution that everyone needs. And I don't advocate for complete disappearing. I mean, we still have to do this, this, you know, I'm, I'm doing another one of these this afternoon and I'm doing another one on Friday. I mean, we're going to do this. It's not like I'm advocating disappearing from the digital world, but I'm advocating questioning the digital world. And Yes, definitely our own currency, whether it's social currency, money currency, 
a kind of community currency. We can invent that. We're free to do that. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and having this conversation with us, Lee. And uh, tell folks again a little bit more about the book and where they can find more about it. Sure. My uh, website is futurex.studio. So that's instead of .com.studio, futurex.studio. And the book is available. I happen to have a handy copy. Let's see if I can get that in focus. Kind of. It's a beautiful cover, by the way. I know you've Thank had you. lots of compliments on that. Where did yeah. you come up with that cover? It wasn't AI generated, I hope. No, <laughs> that'd be funny. Uh, that, it'd be like a big whoops, right? Uh, no, I, I hired a very wonderful designer named Paul Palmer Edwards, who's done a gazillion book co covers before. And he really guided me on this book cover and the next one. And he he knew what would work. So mm -hmm. thank you for the compliments. A lot of people have said it's a good one. Uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, bookshop.org, barnesandnoble.com, all the usual suspects. Yeah, and talk about working locally. I'm getting catching on this trend that bookshop.org is definitely where you want to go buy books to support your local bookstores because they're actually giving a percentage of their sales back to the independent bookstore. It knows where you're coming from, and it's a great alternative to feeding the monster, um, which exists. And you know we're ha we're driven to it makes our lives easy, but at the same time. It's bookshop.org. Bookshop.org, yeah. And you can pretty much pull up any title that's in the system, yeah. and they'll fulfill it for you, and they give a percentage back to all the independent bookstores. Yeah. Another good one is IndieBound.com, which actually just, you look up the book and it actually lists your local bookstores where you could go either ask for it or buy it. But I've switched almost entirely to bookshop.org to buy books. Great. All right, you guys, I really appreciate it. This is uh, the ending of our latest episode of Tech Reads. Join us again I'll, about a month from now. I'll have another episode up, and you'll be invited to join us again live. I think it makes for a more interesting podcast when there's lots of minds in the room and hearing some unknown directions that we could take this. So I really appreciate everybody joining in, you guys, today, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit SoftTech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.